0: Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers pack some atomic power in our flagship season, Brave the Elements. On January 29th, 2019 at Jump in downtown Boise, these storytellers got into their element with stories inspired by the theme, Oxygen. And now, our featured storytellers, Timothy Bryant. Wendy Story, McFarland, and Mark Trailer. It's Elemental. It's story time. Timothy Bryant.
1: Darth Vader screwed up my fourth birthday party, and uh, a good chunk of my life too. So I was born in the 1970s. Uh, by the looks of it, some of you were there. I can tell by your hair <laughs> color or the lack of it. Uh, but the 1970s, it was a good time if you remember it. It was a good time. There was lots of great things happening. You had Haba. you had disco. But of course you had something more important than all of that. You had George Lucas's masterpiece, Star Wars. 1977, the first movie. Really, the only Star Wars movie of the 70s, right? Because the other one came out in the 80s and so on and so forth. But the first really great one, which has been known now as Episode Four and the whole confusing thing, but the first movie was Star Wars, A New Hope, the adventure of Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Chewbacca and the Wookiee and the droids and everything. I was enamored with Star Wars. You see, my parents, uh, I should pause here. My parents, they're great people. They're amazing people. My dad is a very relaxed kind of uh, guy. He has almost Lebowski type qualities about him. He's just very cool, very easygoing. My mom wants you to be happy and she wants to be the reason for it. She's just this just bubbly, loving person. And they just celebrated 47 years of marriage yesterday. Thank you. Because the rest of the story is going to be about how they bad-parented me, so thank you for that. So, my parents know that my older brother and I, we we are just totally enamored with Star Wars. My dad was actually one of the first uh, pirates out there. We, back in the 70s, uh, there were the things called the drive-in theaters, right? Where you pull your car into this, this open lot and there's this huge screen and they're broadcasting the, the movie and you'd watch it. Or at least most people were watching it, I think. Uh, and, and anyways, on the radio, what you dial into a radio station to get the audio of the movie. And my dad was smart enough to bring his radio tape recorder with the D batteries in it and record Star Wars. So he brought this home to my brother and I and said, here, here's Star Wars on audio. And we were like, this is brilliant. So we set up our our bedroom all the way into the hallway of like the entire movie. We had makeshift spaceships and all our figurines, and we would spend hours. We'd spend a whole Saturday just setting up the movie and playing it for 90 minutes because we just loved Star Wars. Star Wars was everything to us. So in 1979, it's my fourth birthday party. And uh, for those that know me well, I, I, I do... When it's, when it's my birthday, it's my day. Can we just, can we just agree that you know, it's your day to be king for a day, and you just soak it in, and so you're holding court. I was holding court. Even at four, I was holding court. And I loved the attention. I had everyone there. I had both my grandparents there. Of course, my parents and my brother. I had aunts and uncles there. I had childhood friends. It was just the most beautiful day. In Gladstone, Oregon, I'm out in the backyard and there's just this party happening and everyone's celebrating me and it's a really joyous occasion. It's a a beautiful moment for me. And I'm getting really great gifts like a two-foot statue thing of Godzilla that has the flame that comes out of his mouth and, and of course, Stretch Armstrong, which didn't really last very long. It was probably a week because the dog got it and we found out what was really inside of Stretch Armstrong. But the main guests were, of course, the Star Wars guests, any figurines or any spaceships or anything like that. And you have to remember, this is the 70s. This wasn't like, you know, today's birthday parties where, you know, everything is fully themed. Like, we, we had real basic balloons. We didn't have, you know, the, the plates that had the Chewbacca on it. It was a very simple, humble birthday party. And so my parents wanted to kind of up the ante. We're going through the whole thing. We've done the gifts. We've done the pin the tail on the, uh, on the R2-D2. And now we're, now we're at the point where it's the cake. And I start hearing the song, Happy Birthday, Happy Birthday to You. And I, I'm, on my, I'm on my knees, and I kind of like shift around, and I see coming from the house, there's a grouping of people of my family, and they kind of part open. And standing forth... You already know it's Darth Vader, right? You you figured that out. So let's just take a moment and review my parents' options, right? Um, We had Luke Skywalker, we had Han Solo. uh, We had Chewbacca. I I get that these are like hard costumes to come up with. So, you know, I mean, we could have put grandpa in dad's brown robe and call him Obi-Wan Kenobi. Or we could have put the robe on my brother and called him a Jawa. You know, there were so many options. You could have covered my brother in, I don't care, aluminum foil and call him C-3PO. It would have been fine. But instead, they landed on Darth Vader. So here comes Darth Vader, and everyone is just like singing the song, and there's all smiles, and Darth Vader is coming towards me holding my cake (laughs) with the candles burning, and he's walking slowly towards me. And I am, I am petrified. <laughs> I, 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 I shut down. I, I actually, I actually, I actually just stopped breathing. Because this is, this isn't right. You see, being so integrated into Star Wars, I understood what it meant to be good or bad. Or what it meant to have a, a hero or a villain. And my sense of right and wrong and black and white was all tied to this movie. I, I get it, like, The Empire Strikes Back got weird because Luke kissed his sister and then there was the whole, I'm your father thing. That's a gray movie, okay? It's the best movie, but it's a gray movie. And if I ruin the ending, that's on you because that movie came out 38 years ago. <laughs> but back to my birthday party. Darth Vader, cake, I am frozen. You have to understand, this guy, is not just bad, right? He's not Mr. Bad, he's not Dr. Bad. He is so bad you have to come up with a different first name. He's Darth freaking Vader. And I'm scared. People, I'm scared. I'm four. I don't understand what's going on here. Like, This is a serious moment for me to go, why is Darth Vader at my birthday party? <laughs> he should be, I mean, everyone should be freaking out right now. Everyone should be just like, it's Darth Vader! But instead, they're laughing. And I'm, and I'm, I'm seriously confused. I'm, I'm genuinely distraught. I'm scared, I'm so, so scared. But at the same time, I have this really confusing moment because what's supposed to be a really happy moment is turning out to be a very sad moment and a very scared moment. And the people that I love and the people that I trust are, are okay with what's happening here and it's not okay. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I lock up. I can't breathe. I do not blow out my candles. I don't have the oxygen to blow out the candles. And I don't know what to do. I've spent a few years in counseling on this one. <laughs> and what I've, what I've been told is when you're under a very stressful situation, you, uh, there's a certain part of your brain that takes over. It's called the reptilian brain. And it doesn't really include any kind of rational thought. Your body just, it just takes over in things like your breathing or your, um, your, your, your sweat and your heart rate. Um, just all these decisions are just made for you. Um, and most of the time, you have two options. You can fight or you can flight. But in some cases, there's a third option. And that third option for me was to freeze. You see, my belief was if I just stay still and I don't even breathe, that the danger will just go away. That it, it will just it will just move along, like a wild creature, whether it's a saber-toothed tiger or a grizzly bear, will just move along and not even see me. So here I am at my fourth birthday party, hoping that Darth Vader doesn't see me, even though he's presenting me with this cake and the burning candles. <laughs> and I wish I could say that's the only time in my life that that happened, where I, f- where I froze. And as it turns out, I actually got really good at freezing. There were other traumatic moments in my life where I stepped back into this this moment of being frozen. There was a a period of about a year and a half where a friend of a friend, I was at my brother's baseball games and um, there was this older kid that was, his brother was on the baseball team and when there was baseball happening, he and I would just go run and play on the playground. And I would freeze when he would ask me to touch him and for him to touch me because I didn't know what to do. And I knew that it was wrong. But just like at my fourth birthday party, I would just push those emotions down and not move. I spent more than 20 years in a relationship with someone else Constantly freezing, constantly coming up against conflict and, and not, not living it, not living through it or seeing through it. I would just freeze and shut down because I didn't know what to do. And it was about eight years ago, eight years ago this, this month, that I found myself in a situation where it was an experiential seminar where I was able to kind of unpack all of this and see what I was doing with my life, see the way that I was stuffing all these emotions down and tucking them away and trying to outrun them and how that wasn't working for me and how I could make a different choice. How I could make a choice to breathe, to let the oxygen come through when I'm in a stressful moment. And I still have stressful moments. I have plenty of them. But the difference is right now I'm finding a way to breathe. I'm finding a way to access the oxygen so that I can think, so I can get outside of that reptilian brain and be rational and respond rather than react. And I still love Star Wars. (laughs) My son, when he was four, I said, we're going to do this thing where we're going to watch one Star Wars movie every year on your birthday because I believe in Star Wars. I believe in everything that it has to offer. So when he was four years old, we started out with A New Hope. And when he was five, we went to Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and so on and so forth. We worked our way up through all the movies. And after the sixth movie when he was 10, we were out of movies. But thank Disney for buying Lucas Films and deciding to put out some more movies. And so every year, for as long as Disney's going to make them, my son and I will have this special connection to Star Wars where we'll always go on an opening night to a new Star Wars movie every year to just celebrate what it means to have that in our lives and to breathe, to just breathe. Thank you.
0: Please welcome Wendy Storey
2: McFarland. I felt small and insignificant and free, standing at the bottom of the Grand Canyon on the riverbanks of the Colorado River. The canyon walls stared back at me. They felt like all of history and all of time to come, looking down at me. My mortality was everywhere, from the sweltering heat to the frigid waters to monsoons and flash floods that would carry boulders off the canyon walls, landing next to your tent or even your boat. And then, of course, there's the rapids, rapids that demanded my life respect. Pretty much all the water on the Grand Canyon is big, and this was a trip I planned for and trained for. My husband made sure that I was in the captain's seat on plenty of big water trips. There are lots of women that do big water. It just so happens on this trip, I was the only one, and I was alone. We had plenty of passengers to ride with me, it's just that no one wanted to. <laughs> I'd chosen my dad's 16 foot Idaho river boat. There were bigger boats, some even had motors, that offered security and excitement. We were about halfway through our trip at mile 93 when we found ourselves scouting the rapid Hermit. Hermit is a giant roller coaster type rapid. It's 10 waves. And on the fifth one, you get a little extra excitement. And it's actually got a little more consequence as well. The fifth wave of Hermit was famous for flipping boats much bigger than my own. Little did I know as I stood there staring down that rapid, I was actually staring down my life and that the flood of my past was coming for me. You see, I grew up the oldest of two, daughter to an entrepreneur and a school teacher. My parents came from pretty modest means One grandfather who poached to feed the family, and the other one who taught his kid an honest hustle. When I was about the third grade, my grandpa came to visit from Gooding. I remember his green truck pulling up as he called for me and told me to bring my brother and my little red wagon, too. We met him at the back of the truck, and he opened up the hatch, and he dropped down the tailgate, and inside was a bed full of potatoes This is when I learned what the word gleaning a field meant. And he told me the plan. He said, you guys are going to sell these to your neighbors. And we did, 10 pounds, one buck. I can't imagine who could have possibly turned away two little kids and a red wagon full of potatoes. It was the early 1980s, the rise of real estate mogul, Donald Trump and motivational speaker zig ziglar my dad was just trying to make his mark in real estate and so these two men were kind of influential zig ziglar had written two books that i remember anyway Uh, i'll see you at the top and born to win along with these books came a motivational album a musical album in fact and it played through the speakers of our 1982 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme as I sat in the back. Don't stare up the steps, step up the stairs. There's room at the top, your goal is right up there. It's time for your journey, get ready for the climb because I'm going to make it, you're going to make it. We're gonna make it one step at a time. Thank you, by the way. Thank you, thank you. I can't even believe I did that. Um, Yeah. Uh, The message that I was the captain of my ship, the master of my destiny, was loud and clear in my childhood. By the time I was in high school, my brother and I owned a lawn mowing business that earned more money than my first job out of college. There was no doubt in my mind that I was going to be steering my life towards the top and that I was born to win. Fast forward, I don't know, like 20 years to the day my husband and I are meeting with a financial planner, naively saying, we want to help send our kids to college. He hands us a most laughable plan for the situation, but it didn't really matter because by the time we got back to the car, I had a plan to make our financial dreams come true. I would leave my job in education and join the family business, real estate. It was 2006 and business was looking good. Oh yeah, you guys see this, huh? You know what's coming. Yeah, so being the planner that I was, I made a great exit plan. Yep. Uh, it took a year to, to actually implement it so that everything was safe and secure. And I even had two backup plans. Problem was, by the time I made the leap, I landed right in the recession. Yeah, there was no plan that was going to save me now. I tried desperately to get into the salaried workforce, always coming Pretty much runner up. We started paying our mortgage with our home equity line of credit. Yeah, not a sustainable plan. And I know some of you know about this problem. <laughs> and um, it was a horrible feeling, really scary. Um, gotta be honest, I was terrified we were gonna lose our home and be homeless with three little kids. Uh, three little kids, one of them kept getting sick. Uh, Never a fatal diagnosis, but never something easy either. My brother paid me a visit to see if I was okay. And I wasn't. I was drowning. So he tells me, grab onto something you can control. So I get my little hustle together, and I do. I start a little business called... Mama can do it. (laughs) Insert Rosie Riveter. Yeah. Right? So I start sewing purses and I start cleaning people's houses. And I even load my lawnmower and my weed eater into our minivan. And I start mowing lawns again. If only that had been the oxygen I needed. I then found myself. Shortly after, well, actually, I had barely resurfaced after this when I found myself on the riverbanks of the Colorado River, scouting Hermit Rapid. I remember as we stood there, we were watching that fifth wave, trying to figure out our line. And we noticed that she would break on the left and the right and the right or the left. And always, there was this nice little passage to make make it through safely. But every once in a while, and in no particular identifiable pattern, the wave would open up and she would crash from both sides, destroying the path for safe passage. I didn't actually think too much about it, and I felt confident and fine. I'd already been through some pretty big rapids by the time we were there. We went back to the boats, and uh, I picked my line. My entry was good. One, two, three, four. I slid into to the trough, going into the fifth wave. And the nose of my boat kissed the base of the wave, and I felt the power of the fifth wave pull me in. Just then, My eyes scan up to get the full wave in view, and she turns to complete glass. I hadn't even considered the possibility of an unlucky timing. My boat pulled up the face of the wave, and I knew what was coming next. There was no stopping it. I dug my oars in and said quite a few curse words. The nose of the boat reaches the top of the wave and the crest crashes on both sides over the bow of the boat, swamping it. My boat, the left side rises up and the right side curls under me. I slide from the seat to the rubber and then into the water. It was quiet and dark and time slowed down considerably. I remember scanning my body and saying, you're okay. I'm okay." And then my head started to burn, and my lungs were starting to catch fire. And I thought, why am I not coming up? And I realized my boat was on top of me. More burning, more fire. And I think, how much longer can I do this? And then I think, oh my god. Is this drowning? Is this it? I die right here, with my kids watching? And something snapped. And I remembered what I'd forgotten in the pain. And I lifted up my arms, and I started crawling the boat. Eventually, I reached the end of my boat. My head popped up free, and I gasped for air. This time I was on fire, but it was because I was extremely angry. (laughs) I was so pissed at my boat. (laughs) I hit her and I pushed her as hard as I could. And she started to float away from me, the current catching her a little bit. And I glared at her, thinking about what could have been. But just then, something further downstream caught my eye. It was my posse and they were coming for me. My eyes went back to my boat, and I heard my friend Scott's voice saying, a captain never abandoned ship. And I looked at my boat. She was naked side up. There was no denying our new reality. This, this was where we'd landed. This is what it was. And I decided I wanted her. I took my first stroke, and then the next, and I swam to her. By the time I reached her and climbed on top, my posse was there. They helped me push my boat to the side of the river. We got her right side up, and I climbed back into the captain's seat. I grabbed the oars and said a little prayer for the calm waters and the people around me. This was my life, entirely mine. Thank you.
0: Mr. Mark Taylor.
3: Hey, everybody. Good evening. Um, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, my parents used to drag me out every week, kicking and screaming, to Sunday school and church. A lot of you probably had the same experience. I don't know, maybe a lot of you really enjoyed going to Sunday school, but it was really hard for me. It was not my favorite thing. One of the things that was really bad about it is that I had to wear these scratchy, stiff, uncomfortable clothes, and I also had cheap parents who bought me a a suit about once every two years. And so I was squeezing into these things. It was constricting. My mother would just pull that collar so tight. And then I had to wear the clip-on tie And it always pinched my neck. I went around all through my youth with a little red dot around here where that (laughs) clip-on tie had been pinched on. So Sunday school was just not my favorite thing. And it wasn't just the clothing that was constricting and suffocating. It was actually the content. It was what they were telling us in Sunday school that had me suffocating. I remember I had one Sunday school teacher that was just sort of obsessed with the devil. She was always talking about Satan. Satan was everywhere. He was under every rock. He was behind every tree. He was on our shoulders whispering evil things like in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Um, I, I had a conversation with my, my good friend, Larry Vold. We were eight years old. You know, I said, Larry, I don't know. Do you believe all this stuff about Satan? And we talked about it, and we decided that the whole Satan thing is probably like the Santa Claus thing. You know, it's probably just your dad. So... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, you know, the thing is, if you talk a lot about Satan, then inevitably you end up talking a lot about hell. And we learned about hell in Sunday school, not when we were really little, but we got a little bit older and they wanted to educate us on this very important subject. So I remember one other day in Sunday school, we were a little bit older and uh, the teacher was teaching a lesson from the felt board. And if you went to Sunday school, you will remember the felt board. It was a big board that was put up on the wall, and it was covered with, you know, well, felt, you know, hence the name. And uh, you could order from the Sunday School Curriculum Company these cutouts that would stick on the felt. So it was a really interesting visual aid, a way to tell a story. There were objects and there were people, and you could move them all around. And it just made it a more interesting story than just having the teacher stand up there and drone on and on, you know, kind of like I'm doing right now. <laughs> so. And this particular day in Sunday school, I will never forget because it was so dramatic and so awkward. The teacher was telling the story about the passage in the Bible that says, broad is the road and wide is the gate that leads to destruction and many people will follow that road. But narrow is the path and small is the gate that leads to life and few people will find it. So she had all the cutouts. There was a big brick road and she put that up there on the bottom of the felt board. And then, of course, there was the wide gate that went at the end of the brick road. And then there were all these figures, all these people that were put up there. And they looked very happy. They were yucking it up. They were having a great time. Really, I think they had drawn those characters to look like they were inebriated. Um, And there was a whole bunch of them all spread out along the road. Uh, But then she took a narrow strip that represented the narrow path, and she put that up at the top of the board. And then there were trees and bushes that went all around the narrow path, so it was kind of hidden and hard to see. And then there was only two little guys up on the narrow path, and they looked much, much less happy than the guys (laughs) down on the broad road. And, of course, a tiny little gate that looks like you just have to squeeze through uh, to get there. And then the big reveal at the end is she took the cutout of heaven, the paradise, she put it up there at the end of the narrow road, and of course it looked like the city of Oz in the movie, and there was gold, and there was jewels, and clouds, and it was beautiful. But then she took this other cutout of these flames and smoke, this conflagration, and she put that at the end of the broad road there. That's where all those other people were heading. But the the thing that happened is that when she put that Big fire at the end of the broad road, there was a little girl in our class that started to cry. And we all knew that little girl, and we all knew her story, and we knew that just a few months before her mother had died, she had died of cancer. We all knew her mother. So we knew that something had affected her horribly here, and the teacher said, honey, what's wrong? And she said, you know, my friends at school told me that my mother's in hell because she wasn't a Catholic, And, of course, she was devastated. And the teacher said, honey, I knew your mother. She was on that narrow path. She is in paradise today. And that, of course, was great and appropriate to say. But then the teacher had to go on. And she said, by the way, all the Catholics are going to hell. (laughs) So it wasn't just these fun-loving, happy-go-lucky people who didn't care about God. It was also like really devout, really spiritual people who were on the broad road. All the Catholics, and we assumed all the Jews and the Muslims and, and the Mormons and everybody who wasn't us was on that broad road. And I just thought, wow, it was just incredibly awkward. And reflecting, <laughs> back, reflecting back on that, I guess there's a couple of things that, I, you know, all through my junior high, high school years, I just was thinking about not just that day but all that they had taught me about hell and basically what they believed in my church was that very few people were going to make it to heaven maybe five maybe 10 percent which meant that 90 percent 85 whatever most people most of humanity was going to end up in hell, burning for all eternity, irrevocable, irreversible, irredeemable. That was the amazing grace we were singing about. <laughs> and it just didn't make sense. And not only that, but what that told me on that day and what I learned at other times is, is that while we were sitting in there learning that all the Catholics were going to hell, all the Catholic kids were right down the street learning that we were going to hell. And we both assumed that all the Mormons and the Muslims and the Jews were going to hell. And, you know, so it really, it just kind of felt like what they're teaching us is, is the worst tribal instincts of we're right, you're wrong, we are all goodness and light, you are all darkness and evil. And it just kind of drives a wedge and everything that hell paradigm just seems to make the whole world a more sectarian tribal kind of a place. So I kind of had stopped believing in all that stuff. I still went to church because, you know, there was a lot of pretty girls in the youth group. And and I I did feel uh, a very strong connection with God, and so it kept me going. But I had kind of checked out on all the doctrine and the dogma and the theology. Uh, I remember some years later then I had a conversation with a family friend. I was probably, I'm thinking I was 19 or 20 years old. And I was telling him all my thoughts and feelings about hell, and he surprised me. He surprised me because I knew this was a guy who really loved and respected the Bible. And what he said was, everything they told you about hell was wrong. And I thought this would be the guy who would buy into all that stuff. But he went on to explain to me that the perception, the modern ideas, the the widely held beliefs about hell that we have today are more a product of medieval Europe than they are a product, actually, of the Bible. I mean, for example, the word that we translate as hell, is actually, it doesn't reflect at all the medieval nightmare that has come to mean to us. It was all kind of revised during that period. Same thing with stories like The Broad and Narrow Path. And when he talked about this, it kind of lit me up. It was like a breath of fresh air. I'd love to tell you more about these ideas, but Jody has told me in no uncertain terms that we have 12 minutes for this story. (laughs) And I don't know what happens at the end of the 12 minutes, but I don't want to find out. I have a feeling it puts me on the broad road to destruction. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but, but that, that conversation was pivotal for me. And it just sort of give, gave new oxygen to my spiritual life. And I became interested in these kind of things. I ended up going to seminary. I ended up becoming a pastor. And for the last 35 years, I have had a ministry career. 25 years ago, I started a church in Southeast Boise, and much to my surprise, it was pretty successful. (laughs) And uh, it's been a wonderful life, incredibly rewarding, but here's the thing I don't like about being a pastor. At least in my case, when people find out I'm a pastor, they want to put me in a box. It's a box of theology and doctrine and dogma. They assume things about me, that aren't true. They assume I believe certain things that I don't believe. They assume I vote a certain way that I don't vote. They stereotype me as something I'm not, so I hate being put in that box, but they really want you in that box because they're in there and and they want you in there with them. (laughs) But it is so hard to breathe in that box. So my mission through the 35 years was to poke holes in that box. Every Sunday, I drilled a new hole in that box because I needed to let in a little light and a little oxygen. But I also knew that poking holes was, what en- was not enough. And one day, I was gonna have to open the lid of that box. And I knew that the key to opening the lid on that box was to tell the congregation that I did not believe in medieval hell. And so the day came, I had lined it up. I had a sermon series. I was going to do an eight-week sermon series, but I knew that every week I spoke about it, I would be building my scaffolding a little bit higher. And if they were going to hang me, I wanted the drop to be as short as possible, so I cut it back to three weeks. And I told the congregation I didn't believe in medieval hell. And immediately, we lost 20% of our congregation and about 80% of our momentum. And that was a really hard time for me. You know, it used to be, if you were a heretic, they would burn you at the stake. Today, if you're a heretic, they stop attending and stop giving and slowly starve you to death. (laughs) And it was a tough period. And there were times where I thought, man, I wish they just would have burned me at the stake. I mean, it'd be so much quicker. I can do anything for three minutes, you know. (laughs) But you know what it did for our congregation is the same thing that conversation had done for me so many years ago and that is that it became this breath of fresh air and it it reoxygenated the spiritual life of many people who just felt such a sense of relief not just for themselves but for family members and really for all of humanity and the conversations that res- resulted made people stronger. And you know, we recovered from that. We recovered from that hell series. And three months ago, I was able to retire after 25 years at that church and hand that thing off in pretty good shape to the next generation of leadership. And now, I'm out of the box completely. <laughs> I have started a new podcast called Christianity Without out the Crap and I am off the leash, so I'm out of the box. You know, the day will come where they have to put me in that final box, and I won't be able to pull holes to get out of that one. But when that day comes, I think, I know, I'll be free. Unless, of course, I'm wrong about this whole hell thing. <laughs> Because if I'm wrong, I'm definitely going. (laughs) But I sure as hell don't think so. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Thanks for letting me tell my story, story, story.
0: Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group, and the Oxygen show sponsor, Body Basics. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was the Boise Phil Woodwind Quintet. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. You can also donate by phone. Text FLAGSHIP to 41444. Thanks for being a part of our story.